Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we continue seeing Christopher Nolan films at the cinema. The big return to cinema event is go see Christopher Nolan stuff. It's The Dark Knight, the big one. Yes, the whole cinema felt like it was in a time bubble, <laughs> a time capsule. All the advertisements are from six months ago. The films are from like ten years ago. Yeah, I yeah. kind of... We, well, we keep seeing a trailer for Inception. Yes. <laughs> Have you seen The Dark Knight before? Yes. Have you seen it on the big, genuine IMAX? Um... No, I think I think I saw The Dark Knight at the same place that we saw it today. Right. And again, you know, I I am hoping that you will illuminate me because it's like, lost on you. It is lost on me. I don't get people's appreciation of these films. I will I will say first of all, I saw this. I was I was hyped as hell for this when it first came out in oh. two thousand and eight, and I saw it. Not only did I see it before it came out officially, I saw a preview on the Wednesday at the big IMAX in Birmingham, as it then was, before it stopped being an IMAX. I also saw it on the Tuesday before that, because my brother got tickets to um, Richard and Judy's Film Club. Oh, you're both such geeks. I I didn't know about this, but he he was mega into it. And and he obviously had seen this on Richard and Judy, and if we were coming to Birmingham, and we're going to see The Dark Knight, so if you want to see the film and give us your thoughts, you know, write in. And obviously he did. And we got to see it, and then we left before... Uh, before. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we didn't appear on telly. We weren't interested in that. We just wanted to see the film for free, and we did. Um, so it was, it was... I mean, it was epic, and obviously this is the one where the Joker comes in. Yes. You know, after Batman Begins has been sort of, in some ways, kind of downplayed, after the cartoony antics that we've had in the 90s from mm. those Batmans, you know, Batman Begins just knocks that all out and says, we're going to just do this in shades of brown. And the Dark Knight goes, no, we'll have some colours. And the colours will all be on Heath Ledger's face. And he, when I was saying in the Batman Begins podcast that, having watched them recently, I thought this was my least favourite. I mean, I was being unfair to it. Like, There are things about that that I still agree with myself on. But the action in this, there's a whole section of the middle of this film that is non-stop movement and action from one set piece to another a lot of them intercut and i think in some respects it's actually it's a real masterpiece of of pacing and tempo and keeping you moving well i disagree i thought it was awful really yes i do i think um you you didn't see any of the movements completed it all felt like a blur you know there was like handheld camera throughout you didn't really know what was happening kind of you know the camera was just pausing for an effect it was all just kind of like rhythms I really, I hated it, really. I well, hated some of that. Hated it's too strong, you know. And I think it would be unfair to say that I was bored. Except, I think, you know, about half hour before it ended, I was bored. I was kind of with it, you know, uh, uh, for most of it. Kind of, you know, looking critically and in in yeah. disapprovingly, in a way, saying, oh, really, like, you know... When did Batman become James Bond, right? Like, <laughs> you know, again, because, you know, I am like, a, I am someone who's followed Batman my whole life. I really used to be involved in all the comic books and, and actually in the Batman in the various different manifestations in the comic books because there was, even as a kid growing up, there was a different Batman, mm. you know, in detective comics than there was in, you know, the Justice League or the Brave and the Bold or, you know, there were so many Batman titles or Batman co-starring with other people, you know, that, that yeah, kind of, you you know, you didn't have just one Batman in your head, right? Uh, you had various. Um, but, I, you know, I don't like the design. I hate the design of the costume. It makes it look clunky and robotic. I hate the design of the Batmobile. You know, it makes it, you know, what are those family cars that, you know, that really people shouldn't drive? Yeah, that are like three meters long. They look like small trucks in black. Big cars that people use to do their shopping. I mean, this, the Batmobile looks like kind of, you know, mm. one of those. Yeah, half, half tractor, <laughs> yeah. half ra- uh, ranger or whatever it's called. I hate the look of it, really. Uh, and... And I hate um, 
I hate that it's a James Bond thing, that it's all about the gadgets and the money. And well, It's interesting that one of the criticisms that we made about Batman Begins was that he's not a detective in it. He doesn't show his brains. So there's nothing about that. In here, there's quite a lot of detective stuff. It's all very stupid, though. Right? Yes. So like, there's this thing... He's such twaddle. It's about... He, he can get a fingerprint off a bullet that's been fired into a wall by shooting loads of other bullets into bricks and figuring out which one looks most like... It's so dumb. And there's... Um, the Sonic um, thing. Well, there's that, too. I mean, that is dumb, too. Although there, there's a whole thing going on in that, which is about... Um, Ethical. Well, it's about the ethics. I mean, it's really... Um, it's like that's Bush's America, right? Kind of distilled into the film. Sure. It's violence and the Patriot Act kind of showing up there. I mean, there's a shot of Batman standing over uh, kind of wreckage after the um, after the scene where Harvey and Rachel have you know, been tied and up and blown up, up. Yes. and he's standing over the carnage. Mm. And you know, there's like it's it, there's there's a girder and there's a pile of rubble and there's police officers in the background and the stuff's on fire and it's like it's a nine eleven image. Sure. You know, the film is kind of. I think quite consciously, trying to render sort of themes or worries um, or ideas of the time in the film. But it actually ends up being kind of quite conservative. Like it says, you know, when push comes to shove and there's a mad terrorist on the loose, you need to do this. Yes. You, you know, even you need and, a strong leader with total powers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And That's it, quite fascist. <laughs> and it does say, well, you know, Mac uh, Hall, who plays Rachel in this, says one of the leaders that Rome had was Caesar and he never gave up his power. Yeah. And so it's like the film sort of has that in it, but ultimately it says this is what needs to get done. The, the first one was about a world in which kind of the justice system is broken down. And this, I suppose, continues it. Like the justice system is broken down and, and you, you don't even know which cops to trust because they're on the mob's payroll. Yeah, well, the police is corrupt. Uh, the homeless society has broken down. All the billionaires are gangsters. You know, they're running the city. So, I mean, I like all of that. I think, mm. you know, that's kind of wonderful to have. That's not my main problem with the film. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with it, but it's like it's all kind of still there, and it does you do you do live with this uncomfortable taste in your mouth of the sort sort of um, I suppose what you were saying again in the previous podcast about the feeling of of this version of Batman not being democratic. Um, if you think about it, because you were thinking about it in terms of uh, kind of class. Um, yeah, I was really. I, I, I was I was thinking about it in relation to notions of Britishness, actually, exactly. because. It felt to me that like British culture or structures the first Batman in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a British person's take on that yeah. uh, uh, world and that comic. So here, where I would say you can think about it being anti-democratic, because I think you can, is not in terms of that, but in terms of what I was saying about this being a trilogy about the battle for Gotham's soul, which is a line that the Joker has in this, you know, I, I, if I'm going to win the fight for the soul of Gotham, because it, because what a city ultimately is the people, and the one glimpse you get of the people here is the boat scene, where there's two boats leaving uh, Gotham, and on one of them is a load of convicts, and on the other one is a load of civilians, and they, they're each given a detonator by the Joker and say, if you, if you want to blow the other ship up, go for it. If you don't do it in an hour, I'm blowing both of you up. And so it's this thing of who's going to do it, what's going to happen. And, um, and I don't care. I mean, I think this is, this is in that period in the last half hour of the film where you were getting bored, as was I. I, going, I don't care about these people. And actually, that's a real problem if these are the people who the film is ultimately telling me are important. It's very badly filmed. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so you think that people are going to be picked out of the crowd, and they are, but they're not making an emotional point with it, or they're not even making a story point of it. Yeah, you would expect some kind of tonalities of emotion to have a rhythm and develop an intensity or, you know, feeling or meaning. You have to be representative somehow. And it, it isn't. It doesn't. Or if it's doing that, I'm missing it, right? Mm -hmm. And also, it looks... Ugly is the wrong word. But, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about all of this film, you know, because you can see that in some of the shots so much money went into it or there's this shimmer at the end of a chase or... Yeah, but so, so there are images in which a lot of time and thought have been spent, but none of them are poetic, right? And I was thinking, you know, because... It hit me, and then I was thinking, well, later, how do I explain this to Mike, right? Because, and I was thinking, you know that shot of the airplane where they go to collect, is it Lam? Lao, I think. Lao. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the mob uh, banker. That's right. And then, you know, this airplane... Uh, so Batman, you know, picks him up and, you know, goes on to... Uh, shoots this thing on this airplane and latches onto the airplane. And the door remains open. And then they fly away across the Bay of Hong Kong or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? It's, it's very beautiful. It's clearly expensive. There's a lot of thought, to be, you know, being given to the door being open, mm-hmm. you know, and closing. And I was thinking, so it, it does all of that, but it doesn't do it poetically, right? So, for example, what I mean by that is, you know, if the camera had tilted or if the door had shut in a particular rhythm, you know, to convey, I don't know, exhaustion or excitement <laughs> or, yeah, like, mm. there's still things you could do with that image to convey a feeling, right, rather than just... Look at this, the door is open and it's now closing. Yeah, this, um, those those scenes are all very brute force. Yes. That's kind of what they're conveying. They're conveying scale and uh, sort of violence. I mean, not not, not, not exactly physical violence. But some, I mean, punches are kind of real big, thick Hollywood movie punch sounds. Hmm. You know, so there's a lot of that with, with Batman thumping people and you, you hear everyone, you feel them. But... You don't feel subtlety in any any action scene, you know. Where there's subtlety is in interpersonal scenes, you know, conversations between Batman and Gordon, conversations between the the one in the hospital between um, the Joker and Two Face, where he kind of becomes Two Face in that scene. You know, that's where you feel, I think, um, that's where you feel that performances are bringing out, are bringing something out of the material that isn't necessarily. They're actually like the, the the performers are are an X factor in this film. Mm. I think. Well, I think I think the film is lucky in that respect because, um, I mean, for me, the only thing worth anything in this film is really Heath Ledger. You know, because he's surprising, right? Mm. And he often kind of makes you laugh just in his intonation. So actually. You know, I've seen the character drawn better and more complexly and more interestingly in the comic books themselves, actually. Mm-hmm. I think kind of, you know, the film is really second rate uh, in relation, you know, to the complexities of character and the visual complexities that, you know, various artists have, have done in the comic book itself. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, Heath Ledger who... Um, to me, kind of makes the film stand out. Yeah, just kind of, you know, it's partly his makeup, actually, which I think is brilliant, you know. I think his makeup's uh, fantastic. And, uh, the, and the conceptualization of, you know, this is like, rather than being, he fell into a vat of acid and was transformed, as is, has been the Joker in some versions, it's this war paint he puts on. And in so many scenes, it's peeling off. You can see his skin under it. Yes. You know. Um, I still prefer... Jack Nicholson. <laughs> uh, I still prefer the vat of pain and the entertainment and the showmanship and the warmth and, you know, kind of, uh, I enjoyed his performance uh, much more than I did uh, uh, Heath Ledger's. Um, but, but, you know, I think uh, Heath Ledger's the only thing that feels like kind of alive in this film and that actually kind of brings a kind of poetry, you know, to the film. Because the rest of the film I find very mechanical and actually really substandard. Like, you know, I think these are images that you create with designers and money. You know, I would expect better of a great director than the, yeah, the, the, the images that you see here. Mm. You know, that scene that you talk about in the ferry or actually some of the scenes in the bank heist or whatever, you know, or some of the, some of the scenes with uh, Commissioner Gordon, uh, you know, I was saying, why is the camera placed there, right? Like, you know, the camera is often placed quite low. Like, it's it's not mm-hmm. at eye level. Yeah, it's almost like at shoulder level. So it's kind of a little bit looking down on people. It makes them feel short and squat, right? Mm-hmm. All of the scenes with the policemen marching at the beginning, like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, somebody with a better eye could have done more with those images, right? So that you get not only the formations of the police, but that something is expressed, yeah, through the formation and the image. Mm-hmm. And actually, that last point of, of of meaning and feeling, the film doesn't arrive at. Some of that may be down to the film having been shot in part on full-frame IMAX. 
and Chris Van Erling was increasingly getting into this in subsequent years. But mm. I think this was the first film he'd done that on, mm. um, used IMAX partially for, because you frame differently. And then when you take, you know, when you take the IMAX frame and you you crop it for a widescreen frame, then you know you decide how to pan and scan it. Mm. Um, and you know, I wonder whether these are shots. They won't all be like this, but some of these will be shots that were framed for that vast, almost square frame and will have looked incredible there. And actually, it, and you know, things will have been framed so nicely there but won't have looked right when cropped down, I think. I mean, I do remember being really blown away when I saw it in IMAX. The very first shot of the film, it's just like a, a helicopter shot looking, looking straight across to a glass building and slowly tracking in, and then a window explodes, and then the, the heist begins. And there was this feeling of, that's quite a 9-11 thing, maybe. Mm. Um, but, you know, when that shot opens and there's a boom on the soundtrack, in the IMAX cinema, because the geography, of the, of the, the, the geometry, rather, of the IMAX cinema is so controlled, uh, you feel like you are flying. You know, you feel like you can't see the floor. You are suspended midair, and it was an incredible feeling. Sure, and then there's, that, yeah, and but that was not the case tonight. No, it wasn't the case tonight because we saw it on IMAX digital, just a big wide, widescreen ah. frame, and um, it looked very unimpressive. And really, you know, all that we've been seeing of Nolan, uh, you know, he doesn't strike me as the a greatest visual poet. No, he doesn't. He's no visual poet. I kind of, I think I agree with that. He ah. has, a, he has, a, he has an eye for scale, and he has an eye for things that feel big. And I think I think IMAX supports that. And I think that's one of the reasons that he loves it. Mm. I think he feels it, you know, and he has an instinct for it. But there's there's not a lot of poetry in his imagery. I agree. I mean, I, you can think of select shots. There are shots in this, like the, like, like the one of Batman standing over that wreckage. You know, it may not be the most original shot, but I think it's quite expressive and there's a feeling, there's moods to that shot. Um, there's a shot uh, which is not an IMAX shot. It's um, it's in the fundraiser of a Harvey Dent where the Joker breaks in, and Rachel you know, interrupts him and says, "All right, speak to me." And the camera starts to swirl around them, and it moves with. I mean, it's a really good bit of choreography, I think, between the actors and the camera. I didn't like it. The camera swirls with him, and then they turn, and the camera goes the other way, and they stop, and like, and it's it's unsteady and uneven, it's, and you're off kilter. Very unsteady and very uneven. And it's handheld. Uh, um, I didn't like it. I liked it. I didn't it. think it was very elegant. Um, and, you know, it was very jarry. Um, I liked it very much. It's, it's an unpredictable moment. It's an unpredictable feeling. You don't know where this is going to go. It's dangerous. Yeah, but that's a cliche to use that kind of thing like that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it may not be original, but it was good. I didn't like you it. Know? I, I was conscious of... Of, of it. Yeah, yeah. And I was conscious of, you know, uh, uh, it being a jarring moment for me. Um, when you were saying that Heath Ledger is the only thing who brings, I can't remember what your words are exactly, but, but brings, uh, I don't know, life or poetry yes. or subtlety. Um, what about Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel? I think she brings warmth. Mm. Yeah, which, um, what's the other person in the last film? Uh, it was Katie Holmes in the first. Yeah, it was Katie Holmes did not bring, you know, mm. to me. Um, she, I found her because I said in the first podcast that Katie Holmes surprised me at how much I liked her in the first mm-hmm. one and that's still true but I think I was unfair to Maggie Gyllenhaal because watching her again in this I thought I'm mean, paying attention to her really I was going now she's alive and she, and she brings um, spark and attitude you know she's flirting with uh, with Aaron Eckhart all the time yeah. and she's, she's this connection that she has with Bruce and she knows that he's Batman mm-hmm. and that's constantly there and you feel this in her performance in her eyes and I like that she, she she's more assertive I mean she gets these moments where she gets to stand up although it's interesting that she has to be saved twice in this, I know but which still, is not the case in the first film but nonetheless she brings all of that which Katie Holmes does not bring any of that no I agree you know and the main thing is the intelligence right so mm. you know Maggie Gyllenhaal brings all that you said plus intelligence Right. Whereas, you know, Katie Holmes brings none of what you said, including intelligence. Yeah, she she has a kind of elegance, I suppose, mm. you know, um, 
Which I think, again, to me would be a, a, a minus, right? Because she's meant to be like, you know, the daughter of a servant, right? Um, so I think what Maggie Gyllenhaal does is just right. She's, you know, she's now a lawyer and she's well-dressed and so on, mm. you know, but she's not kind of a stick figure for high fashion, which is a little bit what Katie Holmes evokes for me. Mm. I think it's interesting um, that... You know, Heath Ledger has become so associated with this role now, especially as it was his last role. Mm. He died uh, famously between filming the role and uh, and it coming out. He posthumously won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And it was, this was widely seen, this was a really original take on the role. And, and the thing that was interesting is no one thought he could do it, really. I don't think. I don't remember anyone really taking it seriously until they saw it. I mean, because he was, okay, he'd, he'd been very, very well received in Brokeback Mountain for a really beautiful, subtle performance in, yes. was that 2005? Um, but before that, it was, what, A Knight's Tale? He'd done a rom-com, I think. Like he, I remember that teen film he did. Um, what was it? Is it the one based on Taming of the Shrew? Yes. can't remember the name of it. Uh, it's, it's a high school one. Yeah. I, actually, I've seen him in a couple of things. And, I, and actually, I didn't... If you see those early films then the performance as the Joker is not so unusual because in one of them, if I remember correctly, he's this outsider, right? And he's quite jerky, you know, and he's a little bit recessive, you know, and so on. So so you could see kind of continuities, really. Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah, Ten Things I Hate About You. And then there was also a sci-fi one he did. There was The Patriot, there was Monster's Ball, Lords of Dogtown, Candy... I love him in Lords of Dogtown, but he plays a surfer in that. Um, um, but the thing is, like, I, I think it is true that no one really took it seriously until until the film came out and they saw what he'd done. And actually, one of the reasons it was such a surprise was because he was, I think, thought of as a bit of a pretty boy. You know. Well, but no, but actually, I think he was always more than. Um, oh no, he may have always been more, but do you, but I mean, I don't remember. I I think he was publicly seen as maybe it's not that unlike what we've been talking about with Matthew McConaughey mm. uh, you know reinventing himself in the early 2010s with you know dramatic roles um, you know it may, it may be too much to say that's what Heath Ledger was doing here mm. but you know those roles for Matthew McConaughey were surprising to people and I think this one was similarly surprising for people sure I mean, it definitely was surprising to people. Yeah. You know, it was immensely well received. It was seen as a revelation. And I mean, you know, um, we were saying last week that there wasn't a laugh in the film, or I said there wasn't a laugh in the film. And actually, there are in this one, and he provides them, basically, mm. right? So he provides both pathos and feeling and, you know, imagination. Yeah. And, and skill. Like, he really does get laughs and effects out of the jerkiness of a movement or out of the way he says a line or out of a facial uh, tick. I mean, you know, mm. that is kind of... Or out of the way he responds to people around him and yeah. feels like he's separate or common. He brings life and he brings unpredictability. Although there are things about the character that I think I still don't quite buy. I never was even at the time. Like, um, very early on in the scene where... All the mob bosses are meeting in that sort of kitchen, and he comes in and does a pencil magic trick and stuff. And he says, "Let's kill the Batman. It's easy. Kill the Batman." The one guy goes, "If it's so easy, why haven't you done it?" Mm. And he goes, "If you're good at something, never do it for free. I want half the money." Mm. And and that never, I never got that because it's obvious that that's not the point. No. And he doesn't need to provide this justification to these people. And this thing about it's an, it's a very obvious question for the guy to ask. If it's so easy, why haven't you done it? But it's it's a bullshit reason. He doesn't need to give it, and I never bought it. It's no. just it t- takes up space. The film, <laughs> the film, in a way, doesn't give you enough information. The Joker, and you know, you could argue well, that it doesn't need to because everybody knows the Joker. But I do think it's important that if you're going to give another iteration of mm-hmm. a character, that you offer the information necessary, or the context necessary, or the boundaries necessary to see the difference between this one and Jack Nicholson's or mm. Cesar Romero's or whoever, yeah? like so, so I think some kinds of logic and a little bit of background information would have been welcome for me, yeah. I mean, I, I, 
No, I, I disagree with that because I think the film is asking you to basically believe in this Joker as kind of backgroundless. Like you get this little bit where where they talk about he says in the interrogation with with Batman, he says, "What would I do without you?" Go back to ripping off mob bosses, mob banks, whatever. It's like so he he was this criminal beforehand. You know, you, he was vaguely introduced at the end of Batman Begins, saying, "There's this guy in town. And you see the car, and it's a Joker. Mm. That's not going to be the next film." So you get this idea that like this is sort of what he was doing. Um, but essentially, you know, the film points up that you know he he doesn't he doesn't have a backstory. You know, he gives these three separate stories of how he got the scars. This is supposed to be mysterious. And the thing about what would I do without you? You complete me. The film is setting up this thing of Batman exists as this extreme of justice, so I exist as this stream of extreme of chaos. And the film is inviting you to look at these as two halves. Yeah. Right? Okay, but you know, I I I mean, it's a, it's the horriest cliche about Batman and the Joker. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, it's not a surprise. Um, but I do also think that either iterations of the Joker give you more background and context. So, for example, when you see Batman, you see that he is Batman because he's got access to all this wealth, all this technology, this immense support system, yeah, with the Morgan Freeman character and uh, uh, Alfred and, you know, and so on. Right, kind of, you know, the, the Joker seems a alone, and you think, how could a person who has no superpowers, yeah, be able to do all of these things on his own? Well, just, well you know, it's just that's he's just the movie villain. He's the king of villains. Well, I I think the villains that really work, you understand a bit better how they function. I do know what you mean. Like he's uh, able to put. To, I mean, I, the, the other line of dialogue that I really don't buy of his is when he says to Harvey in hospital, um, do I look like a guy with a plan? And it's like, clearly you have a plan. You've been setting stuff up all over the place. He wouldn't have been able to get into that building without some kind of... I mean, if you accept that he's got no superpowers, Mm. right, then actually these are legitimate questions to ask. How did he get into the building? How did he find out where this person was? You know, he doesn't seem to have an organization around him. He keeps killing them all off, (laughs) right? So how does he get information, for one thing? I mean, those yeah. are not unreasonable questions to ask. No, I know what you mean. And and to a great extent, you are expected to buy it because it's like his... I mean, is this something that is, again, related to this vague look at the film through the lens of 9-11 and the war on terror? Because is he, you know, as this agent of chaos that you don't know where he's coming from, what he's going to do next, and is he a kind of distillation of the fears of what... of American fears of their sort of mortal enemy in the war on terror in the bush years in you know um well basically al-qaeda uh and you know the taliban and basically all the brown people in the middle east that they were told to hate well and fear i mean he's someone who can attack anything at any time i think this film is profoundly reactionary right because you know the theory that it posits through two-face and through the Joker, you know, that it is all chance, that there's evil in the world, and, you know, it's just a question of luck, of, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, whatever, right? And you think, well, you know, I mean, that's one way of looking at the world, but it's not just a way, it's kind of the wrong way, right? Kind of, you know, the, the you know, uh, social inequalities don't just happen, right? Mm-hmm. They're the result of structures and you know, policies of taxation and, you know, all kinds of things. Like, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's yeah, there is chaos in the world. Yeah, there's no, you know, you, you can't control everything. Yeah, and not everything is known. But there are also things that are known and they're structural, right? So to reduce everything to chaos, to chance, yeah, it's very convenient, right? Mm-hmm. But do you think I'm right? That, in, in, that, that the Joker is Osama Bin Laden? <laughs> Oh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not, um, well, in a way, yes. I mean, you know, if the Osama bin Laden figure became, you know, that symbol of evil that America was now vulnerable to and that it had no control over, mm-hmm. right, then yes, yeah? Yeah. Um, except the film treats... You know, except yeah, the Joker except was Azar, more affection. Azar, Azar bin Laden is not a figure of fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, 
Up to a point, maybe. I mean, but, um, you know, I kind of... Uh, I, 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 there are just too many problems with this film. Both um, aesthetically, right? Uh, and also thematically, right? Like, I, you know, I just kind of... Um, and also, I think there, it's poor storytelling. Again, just to go back to the sequences in the bank and the sequences in the um, boats at the end... You know, you could imagine what a greater director, kind of, you know, William Wyler or somebody like that, or, you know, would have done with scenes like that, where, you know, mm. every reaction would have counted. Think of, you know, the scenes at Rick's in Casablanca, right? And Curtis is not even thought of as one of the great directors. But, you know, every figure in the casino is making a point and creating ambience and creating rhythm. And you have a joke now and then a serious moment. And, yeah, mm. like... Kind of, you know, and and then all, to, all together, yeah, you get a world and uh, the pleasures in the world and the dangers of that world. That, that here, they're flat as anything, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and yet you have the same numbers of people. Yeah. You know, so... so Yeah, it's about scale and, you know, good time management. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, and kind of a, a, a more thought-through way uh, of, of yeah. both filming... But also giving, you know, the actors something to do. I mean, um, and I really, I really despise the worldview as well. You know, I must say, you know, um, because everyone is corrupt. You know, everyone has sold out, you know. Uh, I don't know ev- to trust. Everyone is compromised, right? Mm. Um, and I hate it when he does that with, you know, um, ordinary people, right? Uh, and such, he, as, such as whom? Such as, for example, you know, that nice policewoman who basically oh, uh, sold out Gordon because she couldn't pay her mom's hospital bills. You know, the film could have done it in other ways. Like, so, and, and actually, the way that you're shown that is instead of the system being horrible because you know, a poor old lady can't get medical care. It becomes a denunciation of her daughter, yeah, for selling out, yeah. Mm. Uh, this, yeah. There's all kinds of things in the film that bother me. I mean, I thought, you might have, I thought you might kind of find it interesting because it's a way in which, you know, a sort of um, social inequality or injustice affects a character. Which, well, that's true. So, you know, I think um, the one thing in itself uh, is not um, a problem, but cumulatively they are. I mean, there isn't a single person who doesn't who hasn't sold out except, you know, uh, Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, uh, just the principal characters. Yeah, I, and I hate the conceptualization of Bruce Wayne in this Go series on. as well. Well, because he is not, he's not emotionally affected by anything. Yeah. I mean, I think last time I was saying like, he doesn't love anything. So this thing about like sacrifice, right? You know, kind of what's involved in it. Right. Um, The film tries to create this very forced uh, idea that he's in love with um, the Maggie Gyllenhaal character. Right. But you don't see that. You see that, obviously, there's a bond of childhood or whatever, but actually you don't, you know. And and there's a kind of... The film does evoke a feeling of old friends being together or something. Yeah, There's Mm -hmm. an ease that uh, I think due to Maggie Gyllenhaal mainly, actually. But, you know, you don't see any love in his part or desire or... You know, actually, Michael Keaton shows more, you know, those Kim Basinger in one shot than you see in this whole film, Right. So, and, and so I hate that in the context of the film, it's almost like the dark night becomes the only source of light mm-hmm. in, in the whole world of, that you're shown, right? Yeah, I would have liked to have seen some attention given to poor people, right? Or, mm. you know, that's kind of somebody else could be good in this world that isn't, you know, a billionaire with fascist tendencies. <laughs> Yeah, who ultimately needs to save everybody. But who ultimately needs to control everyone and have access to all your private information in order to do so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's very... And, you know, and, it's, and of course, he, he says, where are you going to use this once? We shut it down at the end. And you go, 
dying good enough. Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, he does shut it down at the end. That's, he does. Uh, but... You know, I'm sure he's got a backup in case he needs it in the future. Well, he could rebuild <laughs> it if he wants, couldn't he? I mean, he's Batman. So, yeah. so he could rebuild it if he wants. Yeah, he? I mean, I mean, I just, I just think there's all those things that when you really think them through, the film is not satisfying. Really, I suppose that you know, when I first saw it, um, I thought, well, you know, I'm not getting it, or I'm just an old fogey, and like every generation has their Batman and. You know, they maybe see things that I don't and so on. Um, and I think actually now it's useful because the film is now what? It's over a decade. 12 years old. It's 12 years old, right? So there's no longer that impassioned heat around it. And I feel more secure in saying, I just don't think it's very good, actually. Mm. So, you know, it was clearly a big hit. It worked on audiences but you know you expect the, the the you know the great films to do more than that and i think if you measure this against like the very greatest films it falls very very short it was a colossal hit and it was you know uh, not that this ranking means very much but it was on top of the imdb's you know top 250 or whatever for ages yes. you know which is just audience ratings but it shows that the audiences fucking loved it yes the the um the version of the Joker in this became a cultural sure. sort of meme and an icon, and, and it's the people dress up in him. People, people, people basically like me believe that they were him before yeah. he was super cool. I think it's also worth pointing out that nobody has failed as the Joker. You know, like <laughs> everybody. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's, that's true. Was in it a way, Cesar Romero was it in the 60s? Cesar Romero in the television series? I loved. It was very campy and so on, but I loved him. I love Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Uh, I love Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. Mm-hmm. Right. I love. There's, there's been one on television, which I forget. Mark the Hamill does the. Um, Mark Hamill does the voice of the animated one. And that was a very big hit. He's but what I'm thinking of is there's a, in the Gotham series. Oh, I don't. The know young that. man who does the Joker there. He's wonderful. Right. So I don't you know, know the Joaquin think... Phoenix one. I don't know. I would say Joaquin Phoenix failed as the Joker. Oh no, I wouldn't. Um... Although I did notice an interesting comparison between. Like, um, uh, first time that I've ever noticed in, in, in this film that the Joker is using um, schizophrenic inmates from Arkham Asylum. Uh, he uses at least two of them as yeah. his you know, henchmen. There's the one who Harvey threatens with shooting him in the head mm. and there's the one who has the phone sewn into him. And I thought, just like Joker, the 2019 mm. film, there's no mental health care in Gotham. <laughs> People are strung out. <laughs> well, listen, you know, there's no just mainstream kind of physical care. You know, you have to like sell your soul to get your mom an operation in a, in a hospital. So, um, Two-Face was a surprise originally because he wasn't in the trailer. I remember. Uh-huh. I remember this was saying that they held back. Um, it, Harvey Dent was in the trailer. But his transformation into Two Face, in like which becomes kind of the focus of the last third of the film, was hidden yes. from the audience, and it was a huge surprise. And I loved it because he—I mean, I, it was one of these where everyone knew who Harvey Dent was. You recognise the name, and you thought, "Oh, is he? Are they setting him up for a later film? What's going to happen?" But it didn't occur to me that he would just become Two Face because I thought that would be in the trailer. You know, they—they go to try and sell it, and of course they didn't. Um, and it was amazing. And the CGI on his face yes. stands up. It does. I think brilliantly. It does. It's It's got moments of like real shock. Um, and it's, it's Lee. Yeah. It's kind of, it's very well done. It's creepy and it's effective and it has enough kind of cartooniness that it's not like super scary. I think it's a mistake. The whole character is a mistake to have him in this film. Really? Yes. Because I think in a way... You know, the film is working very actively towards, you know, the suggestion in, um, you know, the Joker figure. And particularly, I forget what the famous comic book about the Joker, you know, um, that came out just like in the 2000s was. Um, But, you know, this idea that he is Batman's double and that he's as necessary to Batman as Batman is to him and... Mm. You know, and so on. There, there, there are two sides of like, you know, humanity practically, and certainly of Gotham City. Um, I think the inclusion of a second villain, um, 
mm. kind of. But it's the one that becomes kind of the heart of the rest of it because it's about the lot. Like everything, everything becomes a symbol in this, and they talk explicitly about the symbolism of Harvey Dent and Batman. The Batman needs to be the one who killed those people, take on the crimes of Harvey Dent, because Harvey Dent needs to remain the symbol of the uncorruptible white knight of the city. I know. To believe it. I have a problem with all of that as well. You yeah. know. Yes. Um, because. I mean, there's an assumption there that, you know, people can't handle the truth, that they can't handle a sophisticated thought, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're all kind of um, vulnerable to advertising and publicity and, you know, that our feelings are managed and can be campaigned and bought, which to a certain extent is true, but I don't think it's true of everybody, right? And to just assume that that's true of the culture is Mm -hmm. part of what I see as like, you know, these, the films kind of... um, nudge towards like fascist methods and ideals um i i can see how the character of two-face would have been part of the film's dramatizing of this duality because in fact he embodies that duality right he is (laughs) two-face right in one person uh so you know that could have been kind of used as an interesting commentary on what Batman and the Joker represent in relation to each other. Uh, but if that's brought out in the film, I missed it. I mean, to me, mm. you know... He, he turns from one into the other, doesn't he, ultimately? Like, he starts off as, as the, one, this, and this ultimate good, and then he becomes the agent of chaos with the coin. But he doesn't quite... Well, he becomes an agent of chaos, but it's still two-faced. He can be good, right? So he's well, not... Well, I think that... No, he can't be good, though, can he? Like, he... he the no, idea is he's letting chaos decide... Well, it's letting the, someone live is not being good. It's just letting the coin do its thing. Well, true, but at least he's got that potential. Whereas, <laughs> you know, with the Joker, it doesn't. Yeah. Mm. So I think you know, kind of letting the coin decide, it still can fall on either a good side or a bad side. Anyway, my point is that the f- you don't get the sense that the film has worked it out thematically, as you know, where does the where does Two Face stand in relation to Batman? and uh, uh, the Joker, yeah? Uh, so I, maybe it has, and I'm just not getting it. Well, again, I suppose it comes down to that idea that, of the battle for the soul of Gotham, and he's the symbol of the potential. You know, I mean, even Batman even says to him in that scene where he's threatening to shoot the guy in the head, the schizophrenic guy, um, and Batman stops him, not knowing that at the time he's got the double-headed coin, so it's only a threat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Batman says, like, you're supposed to be the best of us. You're yes. supposed to be the one. And okay, the film is then, very consciously kind of... But given. then what is the film telling us when... The film telling us that that's corruptible. And it's a very hopeless kind of portrayal, really. And ultimately ends up with Gordon and Batman being the only two who know this and can fight to try and save the city in the long term. But, they, but even then... But where does that leave to, the Joker? So you see, you're now bringing it up between, you know, uh, um, the Commissioner and Batman. But where does that leave the Joker? Well, the Joker is the one who's made this happen. Yeah, but in that case, you know, this idea that, you know, Batman and uh, the Joker are two sides of each other fighting for the thing of Gotham, yeah, kind of then putting the accent on Two-Face removes the focus from the from the Joker. I'm yeah. not sure. He does it through Two-Face. He's doing, he's sowing chaos and Two-Face is one of the ways. I mean, I, he, he seeks to corrupt Harvey Dent because Harvey Dent is the symbol of what's I think it's, I think good it's, and pure. I think it's not well handled. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, there, there, I, well, I mean, who's to know? You have to deal with the film that is, not with the film that you would have wanted. But I'm not sure what the character uh, of Two-Face adds. And there, you know, there are um, entire sections of the film where uh, the Joker is absent. And then at the end, the, the attention is taken away from him. So, you know, one of the main thematic threads is kind of... Um, Deflated, yeah, or kind of, yeah, which is you know the the interdependency of Joker and Batman. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if you're being fair to to. I think I think the Harvey Dent character is pretty well worked through, and I think he's I think he's pretty well integrated because he the fi- the fight between Batman and Joker is in a huge part about the fight for Harvey Dent, and that's why it's so hopeless at the end because he, Harvey Dent has managed to be corrupted and. I'm I not think, sure what the objection is. Like, I think it's worked through. Well, like, I, I don't. I mean, um, I'm, 
I'm not sure what Harvey Dent brings that couldn't have been brought up through a further development of both Batman's character and of the Joker's. Mm. Yeah, which are both very, you know, I think uh, uh, certainly Batman is like a complete, almost like a non-entity in the film, really. Like, you know so little about him, really. You know, both in his Bruce Wayne guises and of himself as Batman. And um, Commissioner Gordon is a complete damp squib, especially as played by Gary Oldman, I think, you know. Oh, no, I disagree. Uh, well, I'll get, Gary, <laughs> I'll get to Gary Oldman in a second, but I, I just want to say, the last thing I think about, I mean, there's that one point where Batman, or Bruce Wayne, is going to give up Batman, you know, because he says, I can't do this anymore. He says to, to Alfred, you know, at the start of the film, he's been saying Batman's got no limits, as you see scars on his back, you know, mm. fighting crime. And, and Alfred's going, he's got limits, and I'm not going to enjoy telling you where they are when you reach them. And then he reaches them. You know, and he says, I've got to give up Batman. I can't endure this. He's Joker's killing people left, right and centre. On the basis of me being me, I have to give that up. And it's Harvey Dent who, you know, makes this sacrifice, puts himself in the places I'm Batman and basically prevents him from doing that. Does the right thing, brings Batman back in a way, even though he doesn't know that Batman has got this internal monologue going on, you know. So Batman is at one point hopeless, really hopeless. Well, I didn't feel that. Oh, well, he tells you. Yeah, he does tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, as, I, I don't dispute for, that. <laughs> yeah. As for um, Gary Oldman, I mean, I did make a note of this because it's something that I, I I, kind of thought in the first one but didn't put into words, hadn't put into words. And here I realised that actually I really love his characterization of Commissioner Gordon because one I really like and I suppose in some way it goes to what you were saying in the first podcast about one of the ideas being, what is it to be a man? You know, there was that thing in the first podcast about Ra's al Ghul telling Batman that his dad failed to act, his dad was the problem and so on. And, and uh, in here, Commissioner Gordon is not physically intimidating. He's a kind of nerdy and dweeby looking. I mean, he looks like um, Flanders from The Simpsons, mm. you know. And um, he, he often, when he's in a room with a bad guy, like a big proper fucking movie bad guy like the Joker, he often, for me, looks like he's having to pluck up his courage to be there, but he is there and he's doing his job and he's standing up. And I think that makes him really, really likeable. Oh, I think he's a charisma-free zone in the whole film. You know, he just kind of looks sallow and old and phoning it in. I think that's very unfair. I think he's a really immensely likeable character in this because he's... Like he know he he hasn't got the physicality of Batman. He hasn't got all those skills. He would lose in a fight to anybody. But he's just there doing the job, fighting for the right thing. He doesn't even know who it is police force to trust. Yes, you know. But he's just standing up there, still doing the right thing. And <laughs> in I, dark I, little corner, yeah. <laughs> sallow looking, um, and tired. <laughs> I, I find it very very likable. You know, maybe. I mean, we, you talked about him lacking warmth. Um, I think, I think generally that's something you think about Gary Oldman. And I think that's probably true. He's not warm. But I like him. And, you know, I like every time he turns around and Batman's gone. He has that moment of going, oh, for Christ's sake, you disappeared again. Well, it's nice. it's clearly a lack in me because, you know, like I said, um, I mean, this is a massively popular film. Obviously, kind of people liked all of those things. Um, I don't think anyone ever said that about... I mean, I don't think anyone ever took any notice of Gary Oldman in this, to be honest. I think people always said, oh, I like him, but no one ever gave it any thought as to why they liked him. Nah, well, I don't like him, so... Oh, I know. And I don't like him in this. Um, and, you know, I like the film even less than when I first saw it, so I think, you know, um, I, I never need to see it again. There's, there's a, <laughs> a father-son thing that comes back right at the end. You know, we were talking in, in the Batman Begins podcast about the relationship between Batman and his dad and having to stand up to, to his dad's name and so on. Um, not present here, but the father-son thing comes in right at the end with Commissioner Gordon and his son. Yes. Uh, 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 Harvey Dent re- you know, figures out that his son is the one to take hostage. The real boys' films. And, and stand up in front of your son and tell your son, lie to your son and tell him that it's going to be okay. And he does. And again, I think there's something in there about... about kind of... Like, he, he, he turns... He turns Commissioner Gordon into a liar in front of his son. And that's, like, an important moment. Yeah. Well, um, I... You see, I was thinking of other things when watching that. I was thinking, you know, 
what is the mother's role in this, right? I mean, there's barely <laughs> no women in the film. I mean, here's an, an important thing, you know, with, uh, you know, a woman on the verge of losing her son and all the attention is given over to this father, you know, uh, the mother's role is to cry three times in this film. Yes. She cries when she, when she's told her husband's dead. Then she cries when he comes back. And then she cries at the end with the whole son situation. Yeah. That's her job. That is her job. So, <laughs> and like I said, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel is a much more formidable Rachel than in the first film. But she has to be saved twice here. She's attacked yeah, 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 yeah. times. No, it's, That's, it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of misogynist. It's kind of uh, yeah, retrograde, at least. Yeah. It's misogynist and kind of... Racist by omission, in a way, you know, I think, especially when you're dealing with Gotham City in a contemporary setting, you know, to have the only person of color in any main role really be um, the villain, La- Lao, or... Well, the, I can think, well, there's... The there's, Chinese banker. There's Lao, I mean, Chinese banker. There's Gamble, which is one of the, the gang leaders who's black. Um, Commissioner Loeb is black, who who dies in the scene where um, Joker kills him and the judge, yes. who I think is Latina, and tries to kill Harvey Dent, but, but Batman saves him. Um, and the other person of colour I would mention is um, the criminal who throws the detonator out of the boat at the end, yeah, yeah. who is, seems to be quite specifically chosen for his quote-unquote, big and blackness yeah, yeah. and intimidate. You know, he's huge. He's not just black, but he's huge. Yes. And I don't think it would be the same if it was a white guy. I think no, no, he's been I... picked for a reason. Whereas whereas everyone on the civilian boat, at least of any note, or at least who has a line of dialogue, is white and seemingly middle class and has families and yes. the rest of it. You know, that, that that's, a I think, quite a, quite a stark difference that no. doesn't really need to be there. No, and I, I just think it's kind of... It's, you know... It's kind of problematic. So, for example, there's no reason not to have made Commissioner Gordon black. No. You know, yeah. I mean, you could have you could have switched things around like they do all the time. So, <laughs> I, I, I felt, you know, to me, the film lacked in, again, just kind of, you know, areas of texture and richness that would have brought different things to the film. There are a couple more things. I have on my mind. One of them, I just, I want to go back to what I said right at the very start, which is um, that I, I think, I thought of the film as kind of a masterpiece of, of movement and, and pace. And you said, no, I disagree. And fair enough. And what, and what you were saying about um, action scenes being uh, kind of clumsily shot mm. um, and not having a good sense of scene geography and that sort of thing, I understand. And I agree with some of it. And actually, there's a video essay on Vimeo, which is about the shot geography of the central... Uh, sort of chase scene, the convoy where Harvey Dent's in the truck and uh, Joker's in the lorry shooting at him. And it's about how many cars are there, where are they are coming from, the shots, the, the, the uh, direction of movement isn't being preserved, all this kind of thing. And it's quite an illuminating thing. And I've watched that before and I've watched it a few times and gone, yeah, it's quite interesting. This must have been a shit scene. And then I watched it on the cinema screen today and I thought, oh, I don't care about any of that. Like, I'm sort of noticing it, but I'm, f- <laughs> but I'm feeling it. Yeah. It's getting completely past me. I'm into it. It doesn't have that feeling <laughs> that we that you described in Batman Begins of feeling like you are in the car. Mm. Like it doesn't have that. No. There is something more removed and cold about it. I mean, the thing about the th- that scene, feeling like you're in the car in the first film, is it wasn't complicated. It was Batman being chased by police cars. Here, the setup is more complicated. You've got the the um, the police cars. You've got the central. Swap van in the convoy, which contains Harvey Dent. You've got the lorry coming by. You've got the, ba- uh, the the tumbler showing up. Batman in his car. So like, it's more complicated. The the I, set of characters, but I mean, it still really works for me. Well, it doesn't for me at and all. To the point I where just... you get that 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 amazing real life shot of the truck being shot vertically up in the air, which is an unbelievable stunt, and it's right there in front of you. And it's happening and. God, it looks amazing. I, I, I left me cold. It was amazing in the IMAX because it filled the frame, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's again what it's framed for. That shot of Joker right at the start where he reveals his face to William Fickner, the bank owner, and he says, you know, uh, whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. And the fa- and it, and it's great here, but it filled the frame because the frame is basically face-shaped like mm. in the IMAX, you know, and it was, it was incredible. And that's so much of what what things are being uh, framed for and shot for here 
well, that, is that frame? Well, it's a pity because that's not how we saw it. No. Um, and that's, you know, not how we can see it. And, um, and the other thing is, the other thing about the movement is, is that it's not just about that one scene, but it's about there is really a whole section of the film where you're moving from one set piece to the next at breakneck speed because there's not really a lot going on in between. So you move, I mean, I can't remember exactly the order they're going, but you have the chase scene I, I just talked about. You have Joker escaping. You've got the thing about the, the guy who's worked out Batman's identity. Uh, yes. And Joker says, I want him dead. And then you've got the thing under the bridge and, and Bruce Wayne, as he is in his Lamborghini, stops it. And this is... and. There's a lot of this happening, and they're happening one after the other very, very quickly. There's really no time to stop and think, and I mean that's what I think is kind of virtuoso is the way it keeps it just it does not but, stop. Well, but you know, I I I mean I really disagree because it left me cold. Like I just didn't care, mm. right? Kind of, um, you know, more or less how it's going to turn out. There were very few surprises, uh, <laughs> and like I was so disorientated that it just didn't care. And actually, it was also so loud. I thought, you know, the whole, th- you know, the, 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 the driving thing in it was the thumping sound, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the sound was doing, you know, a, a lot of the work uh, in, you know, trying to generate that excitement. But it's one I didn't feel. Um, I kind of agree with that. So. The last three things that I had sort of notes on are fairly minor, but I do want to mention them. One is that Rachel dies surprisingly quickly. And it's in the same way that, spoilers for Interstellar, <laughs> Matt Damon dies in mm. Interstellar, which is in the middle of, like, you think he's about to start a monologue, and then the explosion happens and he's in space. And yeah. in here, she's about to say you know, something meaningful to Harvey, and yeah. boom, it's gone. And so that's obviously something that, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I can think of other examples of Nolan doing that, but he's done it twice. Well, and, and that's such poor direction. <laughs> You know, because she is one of the emotional anchors in the film. She's the woman that both, you know, Two-Face, Dent, and Bruce Wayne love. You would have think that she would have been given a moment or that, you know, something would have been squeezed out of her dying emotionally for both of them, you know. Yeah. So. Well, she has, she, she has been able to tell Harvey, I love you and I'm going to marry you. You've heard that. So she's, had, she's been able to say part or half of her emotional uh, revelation. Yes. And, then, and then the rest is boom. Um, I wanted to quickly say I said to you in the film that that phone that Batman has is fucking shit yes. right it's the worst <laughs> bit of product placement ever it's it's a Nokia 5800 Express Music it's called and I had one I didn't have one because it was in the movie I had one already uh. but I remember that um, the phone came with I think a, a trailer for the film on it or something like that and it, it and it was it was Nokia's attempted answer to the iPhone because it was you know, the iPhone was two thousand seven this was two thousand eight, it was the tiniest little fucking flimsiest plastic piece of shit. It fell apart constantly. It, it was cheap as fuck. Uh-huh. I hated it. It did nothing well, and it really dates the film because not a lot dates the film really. I mean, I mean it's obviously kind of of its day, but nothing. Yeah, you know, it, it's not like that piece of music stands out, whatever. But that phone fucking stands out as like, why would he have that? And you go, knock him with a better fortune. And no wonder they were dying because they, that was such a shit phone. Yeah. So I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and I wanted to mention a very clever bit of sound design, um, which I pointed out to you in the film, but it was in the middle of quite a loud bit, so I don't know if you heard me, which is that the bat pod always sounds like it's accelerating. Uh, the bike. Yeah, yeah. It's always going... I heard bike, but I didn't know where you were getting. I didn't hear the rest. Yeah. If you, if you look at the, the, um, the scenes with the bat pod on, on YouTube, you'll notice it's always going up, and it's this thing called shepherd tones, which is like, it's an audio, uh, it's an oral equivalent of the barbershop pole mm. so it's rotating and it looks like it's constantly going up but it's not mm. and you do the same thing with tones and you can const- and so you can have tones going up at kind of distinct uh, kind of uh, different pitches and then as they get high they fade out and the low ones fade in and so you get this same effect and that's what they're doing with the, with the bike so it constantly sounds like it's getting faster it's a really smart bit mm. of design and you don't know it until you know you know you don't know it until you know it and Hans Zimmer I don't know if he did it on the score for this, um, but he's definitely used it on scores subsequently. He's done it in Dunkirk, and he's done it on the score for Blade Runner as well, where he's had he's used that in the music. So there's a piece on the Dunkirk soundtrack called Supermarine, and it's like a nine-minute track. And in the kind of last third of it, I suppose, 
you have the, you listen to it. It's a very complex, loud, you know, kind of orchestral bit of music. But you listen to it, and you'll notice again. It's like the, these. It, and it's actually not subtle. It's distinct notes constantly going up. But as but as the notes reach the top, they get quieter, and notes come in at the bottom. So you've got this rising tension that does not stop. And in and in Blade Runner, it was. I remember distinctly when we watched it. I noticed it. It was in the scene where uh, Ryan Gosling is entering the. Um, is it like the place that he remembers growing up, and he finds that doll, mm. and he like remembers his childhood or mm. something like that. And it's happening there, and it's constantly descending, mm. you know. And was, and so I, I think uh, so. Basically, I really liked the, like this this what has what I knew about in kind of two thousand and five or something. I've, I'd learned about this illusion, oral illusion, has has started has found its place, you know, as like as like a useful tool in these films and in these scores. And again, you don't notice it until you notice it. Right. It's great. Okay. Well, so I'll keep my good. ear out for it now. Yes, you should. <laughs> um, <laughs> But none of that is the reason that, that, that the film, you know, made a billion dollars and became yes. so as actually, culturally let's important end, as let's, it was. Let's end on that note. Why do you think it did? <laughs> I find it bloated and, and kind of dull, actually. So, mm. you know, so I, it's not that I hated watching it or, yeah, but I kind of, I... I think all the things that I pointed out as false are, to my mind, false. Yeah. Right? But, you know, I, I also realize that a film need not be perfect to succeed. Right? So why do you think the film worked so well on audiences of the time? I mean, I kind of felt it again today, you know, the kind of excitement. And and I don't remember if if I'd seen that opening scene in the bank leading up to the reveal of, of Joker's face. I don't remember if I'd seen that before I saw the film fully. I think I might have seen it online. I think there mm. may have been some like, you know, uh, leaked or revealed footage, and it was like that was one of the things that really stoked it because people thought, oh god, this is so different. It really was a thing you hadn't seen. Mm. That idea of the Joker, it seemed very new. And I, and after Batman Begins, people was angling for like, what what is this realistic Joker going to be? You know, and I suppose that's something that kind of continued with the Dark Knight when you thought, how is he going to do Catwoman and Bane? Like these are weird people, and then you see how how these characters were adapted to a more realistic sort of world or more realistic versions of themselves. Um, so that was kind of... That captured people's imagination. Obviously, the performance of Heath Ledger captured people's imagination, and I think it would have been as popular had he not died. Um, oh, yes. Although it's kind of impossible to say, but I think yeah, it's yeah, not, no, it, would, I... it would not have gone unnoticed. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and like I said before, this in the Batman Begins one, I think this was when people were starting to take these seriously as um, as films with serious thematic concerns that weren't just the quote-unquote popcorn rubbish you know, for children. And I suppose, in a sense, this was like kids were sort of activated by the thought that, you know, kind of big, popular, intelligent cinema was being made for them. Mm. Um, and I, maybe we can just, maybe we can kind of critique that in, in hindsight and go, is it that smart? But compared to what else there was, I think it kind of is. And it definitely had a seriousness of feel and tone to it. That's like, if you think about the contemporary, in the superhero revival of the 2000s, you had like Spider-Man, um, the X-Men films, which were very good. Mm. And they had a seriousness of theme, but they didn't have the the seriousness of style and tone that these do. Mm. And and that I think I can see that maybe that lets you believe they're better. Yes. You know, maybe that lets you uh, portray yourself as I'm an intelligent moviegoer because the superhero films I love are smart now. Mm. Maybe there's an element of that, but yeah. they're not totally dumb. <laughs> well, no, I suppose kind of you know they aspire to depth. I mean, I think the question is you know, that they succeed in achieving it. I mean, my contention is that, that they don't. Yeah, that it's kind of pseudo-depth. Mm. Uh, and that, in fact, it can be read in kind of, you know, quite reactionary ways. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, but yes, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. So, so maybe it's all better. And, and the action is, you know, quite, even if it is easy to pick apart, I, I think it it it. it it flows and it feels very exciting and it's big and one big thing leads to another big thing yeah, and there is a, there's a huge section of that film where nothing really lets up 
Well, and uh, yeah. again, I and, see that yeah. as a fault, you yeah. know. So, <laughs> but, but the yeah, the the scale and that, I think, um, you know, people loved as well. And people, people, people really do love Christopher Nolan. I mean, I really love Christopher Nolan. Um, well, I wouldn't, I, you know, I suppose it's one of those things where I would, I, I would always say I'm not one of his like fanboys, but I've seen the vast majority of his films. I'm always excited to see the next one. Yes, you know, so like I'm in, I'm, I'm in the tank for him to some degree. Yeah, you are. Um, and, I, I'm not, oh. and I do feel like he aspires to put things on screen that need to be seen on the biggest screen. I think that right. aspect is definitely true. Um, um, I mean... He wants you to feel it's a worthwhile experience and it's an individual, an experience that cannot be replaced by, you know, watching at home. Yes. I mean... Um, well, my, my feeling, having now seen these three in a row, is um, that each of them had its faults and actually, um, I think I, I, I think watching them individually, you sometimes think is the problem me as mm. I maybe don't have the temperament for this film, or um, you know maybe I'm not understanding it properly. But actually, I I I am quite settled now. I think it's mm -hmm. you know the film has these problems, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and and you know I would be happy. Uh, not to see any of them again, <laughs> actually. Though we are seeing the we last are seeing we are seeing the third one tomorrow. Yeah. So who knows? But maybe. the third one, I think, is the best one. It's the biggest and most complex one. Yeah. And Bane is great. So look forward to that. Yeah. Maybe. All right. Well, I like Bane as well. So we'll see tomorrow. And um, he wears a mask, which is you know in these times <laughs> <laughs> better than we're doing. <laughs> better than I'm doing. Uh, so, all right. So thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube uh, on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you. Bye-bye. You sound like such a Grinch throughout no, it all. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Exorcist is what you sound like a Grinch. They haven't explained the rules. I mean, I did think, when I was listening back to the Exorcist one, you were going, they haven't explained the rules. And I was thinking, use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I think it's key to fantasy or comic books or things like that. You know, because you need to know when they're in danger. Maybe, but, it, but I mean, it's, I think the thing with The Exorcist was it was obvious whenever they went into that room they were in danger. There was potential for it. And, and isn't part of what's scary, the unknown, you know. And I don't say that glibly. I mean, I think that's actually true of that film, that part of it is the unpredictability, not knowing well, it. Yeah. You know, but anyway. I'll tell you one last thing about this that I noticed is... Um, Gordon is in charge of the major crimes unit, which is the MCU. And of course, MCU means something completely different today. Yes, it's the it Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you notice it. You notice that they're saying Marvel Cinematic Universe in this big DC film. <laughs> before, uh, before MCU was, you know, the word was the, the acronym for that. It's yes. weird to hear that. Take him down to the... That's right. It says at one point, I think, um, lock, lock Joker in the MCU. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Yes. <laughs> Um, mm. anyway now that you're doing all these easter eggs I'm very uptight about what I say <laughs> so turn the mic off